another great episode of my dad's podcast, Daddy Unscripted. My daddy is paying me under the table to let you all know what's in store. If you don't want anyone to overhear words like canoe and mother. We strongly suggest you use headphones for this episode. Now that you helped me earn a special treat from my dad, here he is with your treat, another podcast episode. Dovre zavarili, which is welcome in Bulgarian. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator and the host of the Daddy Unscripted Podcast, and I'm excited to have you all here. Welcome to another episode. This is going to be a good one full of really cool stories. Like this guest, some of the stories that he was telling, I'm thinking of a mix of a character somewhere between Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall when he goes off to kind of find himself and Ben Stiller's portrayal of Walter Mitty and the secret life of Walter Mitty. Somewhere in between those two guys lives Will Henson. And it's, he probably will raise his eyebrows and give me a look kind of like the one I'm doing right now. But I think you will see a little bit of that. And I think we probably didn't fully get into some of it because we covered so much. But Will is a really adventurous guy who had these kind of maybe not so crazy adventures, but... I would describe him from this conversation as somebody who was fearless to try things out, to try places out, so much as he went and lived in... Well, I'm not going to give it away. You'll get to that. But before I get too far, let's get to the fact that Daddy Unscripted is one of the burgeoning members of the Osiris Podcast Network. And here to tell you a little bit more about that Osiris Podcast Network is someone from one of the other podcasts. Osiris. Hi, I'm Bob Crawford from the Avid Brothers, and the podcast you're listening to is part of the Osiris Network, a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture. For more information about all the shows in our network, please visit OsirisPod.com. All right, and now that that business is done, let's get right to this episode with I didn't I didn't even ask him if I should be calling him Dr. Will Henson or something like that, but we'll just say let's get to this episode with Will Henson. All right. Well, we are here tonight with Will Henson, who comes to us via John Loomis from episode 56. Will and John are friends for a, a long time. Will, I haven't even really asked you that. Yeah, so I'm I'm deep with John Loomis. His, his wife, Natalie, who we talked about on the show, uh, her mother is our, I guess you call it nanny. I, she's She's been watching our kids for years. I'm good friends with John. My wife's good friends with Natalie. Our kids are all good friends. So we're kind of, we kind of know them pretty well. Oh, that's great. So I will officially, I just kind of jumped in and asked you a question right off the bat, but welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm excited that you're here. 
So I, I, I kind of teased this uh, before we started, and I will. I think this is a great intro to you. I'm going to read you guys, and this is, unless you snuck away and read this really quickly when I mentioned it, this is probably the first time that you've heard this since, gosh, it's been, oh, this was the middle of December when you sent this. The very last section said, uh, my mom and dad studied bats for 40 years. I grew up catching bats in Jamaica and doing weird shit. Will. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first email introduction to you. And I was like, sold. Yep. You're a guest. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We can talk about that. I didn't, I didn't actually grow up in Jamaica catching bats like every second, but I did go on to my parents and, and grew up with bats. So we can talk about that, Tim. Well, I, also, in that email were a lot of other things. It's clear that you are a very busy man and do a lot of things, which is I'm learning now. You know, I've been for a long time, I've been a big, I always call it a plate spinner. I've been a big plate spinner for probably for my entire life, but uh, I just recognized it more as I got older. And I think I'm meeting so many more men and so many more people that do that. And it's, it's great to see that other people are doing that and that they are also maintaining sanity and able to find that balance in what they are doing for themselves and what they are doing for their family and obviously to make ends meet, but also to strike this balance in what they need, whether it's creative or inspirational or whatever it may be. So I'm, I, I was really very, I was going to say very turned on. Um, and I know some people will giggle at that, but I mean, yeah, turned on mentally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was very turned on mentally by what you said that you're involved in. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of plates. I remember the, the, I think you said that when you were interviewing Evan Kaufman and, uh, I do, I am, I do have a lot of plates, but I don't consider myself a plate spinner because to me, that's somebody who like, feels hectic and busy and is about mm. to drop a lot of things. And I don't feel that way at all. Oh, well, that's great. Well, maybe you will have some uh, good lessons to teach us in here. So let's let's dive right in and let's jump into whether it's just your dad or we go back even further into grandparents or something like that. So tell us a little bit about how we get to you and your timeline. So my dad, he grew up in mainly in like Kansas and in Arkansas. And they moved out West um, for a while when he was, he was young, but he was always an animal guy. And he tells me stories of going to these old world war two bases and catching the rattlesnakes that would live, you know, that would get on the hot pavement, you know, after nightfall and selling these things to museums and going down to Mexico to get specimens and bats. And I just, you know, from an early age, my dad was really interested in animals and he, he ended up with his um, PhD at Yale, which is where he met my mom. Mm. And uh, as we talked about, they, they studied bats for 40 years. I mean, they moved, we moved to Chapel Hill when I was eight. And my dad has always been a guy who's just like into animals. And I don't, I don't mean like I love dogs. I mean, like, like he went to Jamaica and brought me back a giant toad called a Bucarinus toad that you have to hold this thing in two hands. And when it it gets angry, it secretes this milky substance that like is poisonous. And, you know, my dad's like, don't, 
don't lick it when it's angry. <laughs> so I won. I won ugliest pet contest with Bufo. Oh, good. My my dad would. My dad has collections of you know skulls and specimens and you know all the things you'd expect uh, of somebody who studies that stuff to have. But he but he always loves it. I mean, he's eighty now. He's eighty five. Actually, tomorrow. And, you know, is still, we're at his house over Christmas and he's still like, he pulled out his skull collection and he's showing us these, and these are not human skulls, by the way, you know, he's showing us (laughs) wombats and catfish and all these things. And he's pointing out all the different teeth and the bones and how you can tell and how the muscles attach. And, you know, he's still loving this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, that's, that's kind of, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's watched every episode of River Monsters and, um, <laughs> you know, we bonded as when I was young because he would take me to the golf course and take, and we would go catch frogs. Oh yeah. And that was the first thing. And, you know, it's hard to catch frogs. Yeah. But we would, we would do that. We would, he, he was always like taking a net out in the channel up at our, our summer place in Maine and getting specimens and putting them under microphone microscopes and, you know, having me look at them and things like that. So that's so cool. Yeah. yeah catching frogs is not, is not as easy, but it's incredibly fun. It's incredibly rewarding. So I had, uh, I had yeah. some frogs when I was little that I, that I had caught or had some help catching. There was a trip my brother and I were on with my mom and my dad in a motor home. Yeah where we would just kind of go around neighboring states for like a week or two weeks. And I don't know where we were. We may have been in like New Mexico or Utah, Arizona or something, but we were in this, we were parked near this huge field and it was just, you could see it moving with grasshoppers and they were just, I mean, it was like the biblical plague of locust. They were everywhere. And I have no idea what we were thinking. I have no idea why we did this or what our end game was or what our plan was with these. But we both, my brother and I, who were, uh, I would say, not even teenagers yet, got two big Ziploc bags and filled them with grasshoppers and just zipped them up. And we, I think, again, thinking with our pea-sized brains at this time, put them in an underneath storage portion on the outside of the Winnebago uh, where you would maybe put luggage or something. And we kind of forgot about them. And we went back a few days later and we're looking for something and we opened it up. Oh, what is this? This is just this big bag of brown liquid. What is this? They just like completely emulsified. And we were, when we realized what it was, we like cried we felt so awful about what we did and we were wondering why we did that it was crazy so yeah when you catch things some should should just be released absolutely the old catch and release uh grasshopper it's a new it's a new version of catch and release yeah yeah so you guys are doing all of this catching when you're a kid and and you said in maine so so you were from where were you born? Were you born in North Carolina or? I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, when my parents oh, okay. were in, in graduate school. And then we moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I grew up there. Um, but we had a, a summer place that my grandparents owned up in Maine. And we would spend about a month up there because my folks had the summer off. And that's where my dad and I would do a lot of fishing. That was that was the other thing that 
we just love to do together is get out on the boat early in the morning. And back then you could catch, you know, huge codfish and all sorts of stuff out there. And we would just go out on the boat and, and catch fish. And my dad would get so excited, you know, and I would get so excited to see what was coming up off the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some, sometimes we'd be out there at sunrise and there'd be like a giant ocean sunfish with enormous fins sticking up or, something else go by and it was just magical to be out there and 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 be fishing with my dad yeah there's definitely something special about doing really like anything that brings up little surprises like that i mean when you go and you go play catch you know you're going to play catch yeah when you do something that's involving whether it's wild animals or something with nature that you're going to see these surprises. Like I think for us as grown men, and you can think back to this of you as a kid, how cool that is as a dad to see that just remarkable expression on your kid's face is like golden. Yeah. I mean, and my dad would get so excited when something got on the on the line. I still get excited. I mean, I still get maybe more excited than I should, even if I know what's on the line is mm-hmm. going to be. What's it going to look like? How big is it going to be? <laughs> um, I just I just get super excited by fishing and and stuff like that. And we used to fish a lot when I was a kid, and I, I totally understand that because especially the ones that you battle for quite a while, and then you get them up, and it's just this like little bluegill how did you fight so hard that was crazy right yeah Yeah. that's funny so i have i have two daughters um, speaking of speaking of daddies Mm -hmm. and i have had a great time getting them into fishing also Mm. and i i started very early with them what i call the brainwashing program which is (laughs) and they and they know i call it the brainwashing program they're they're nine and twelve now but we would go to the trout farm, which is you're going to catch a fish whether you want to or not. Mm-hmm. And but we would take their friends, and then afterwards we would go to Burgerville and get shakes and fries, and you know, making it fun was just part of of, of the brainwashing program of like we're going <laughs> to make the fish. Guess what? And somehow uh, Santa Claus knew to put bait in their stockings, so they would get cans of bait and lures awesome. and stuff like that. I'd be like, how does he know? And when you are doing this, how early are you starting them in? And is your wife joining in or your dad joining in? Or is this just you with the two of them? So um, my dad's on the East Coast. So he's he's uh, yeah. he has not been fishing with the girls, although he would he would love to. My wife will go sometimes. She has a pair of waders. Yay. Mm. Um, and uh, but a lot of times when we're here in Oregon, I'll just take the kids out to the trout farm. She's been two. But sometimes it's nice for you know her to have a, a break and, and for me to just go daddy and girls and some yeah. other, other dads and and or just other kids with me and uh, and fish. Yeah. Do you do fly fishing out there? I'm not a big fly fisherman. Okay. Too, but we you know last year we we started going. I took him. I've come a couple of years now with a guide where we catch you know big salmon and stuff like that. And my daughter caught this enormous king salmon. Wow. Columbia River. And she was just so proud. She beat us all. And you know, she's the littlest one. And she hauled in this thing. <laughs> I mean, and the guy, I, the guy I go with, you know, he's, he's somebody that I just, the first time I went out with, with him, I, I happened to be with him and all his high school buddies. Hmm. So, um, and I was the only other guy and just kind of got to know him a little bit. And then 
started taking my kids with him. And, you know, one of the things I'm get, you get, you tell your daughters as they start to learn to salmon fish is you, when you get a fish on, we're going to scream at you. We're going to mm-hmm. you keep your rod tip up and your line tight and not horse the fish and all these other things. So I think it's a, you know, it's kind of one of these funny experiences of like, once you get a fish on, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, you're not used to getting screamed at, but you're going to get screamed at. <laughs> 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 yeah. So that's yeah. one too. And uh, that's pretty cool. And the reason I ask if you fly fish, I have this, I, I've recently added it to, I don't, I don't think I have a documented bucket list, but in my mind, I just want to go fly fishing like once and I know I'm going to suck at it and I'm not going to get the rhythm in one day, but I just have this vision of being in waders in a big body of water and trying you come on, to you come on up here, Tim, and, and we'll figure it out. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I started with these trout farms with, with my daughters and just getting them to go and having fun and, and where it would be easy for, for all of us. And, you know, they're to the point now where when they go out, they'll scale the fish and sometimes they'll even, they'll even gut the fish. Oh, wow. Which I consider a win. Yeah, big time. Yeah, so so they're yeah. they're doing that, and then we go to Alaska sometimes because um, I I spent some time up there, and they've they've caught fishing streams up there and had a lot of fun, just you know catching their first salmon in Alaska and and holding them up and and going through the whole fight with them. Have they or you done uh, ice fishing? I've I've done it when I when I lived in Alaska. I moved up there after college and. Uh, you know, when it's really cold, you could drive your car out on the ice, park it, chip a hole in the ice, and and fish like these fingerling salmon. It's really it's really weird to be sitting there with you know having a fire on the ice and looking down through this giant hole. Yeah, where you're fishing. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh man, you have you have lived a life. So let's work our way through all of that. So going back to your childhood, your living there in North Carolina and you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Oh, okay. So you, your mom, your dad, and you are going all the way through there, going to high school. Take us down that kind of road. So, um, you know, my, my parents were working in the bat lab, like literally at, at UNC Chapel Hill. And I started off in, in Chapel school system and, about fourth grade, the Chapel Hill system reverse integrated. So they sent the white kids into what was then about 30% African-American, but probably the, you know, the quote unquote high poverty school. And so I was kind of reverse integrated into this slightly rough school. And that was, Hmm. that was sort of a hard transition. And at the time we didn't understand the politics of it, or, you know, we kind of understand that it, what was going on, but we're in fourth grade, we didn't care. And when I got there, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of bullies and it wasn't African-American. It was, it was the white kids that were, that were really bullies to me. And so on one hand, you know, we had this kind of, I had this kind of experience where I was getting picked on a lot and I kind of needed to, to toughen up and, and it was a really hard transition in. But on the other hand, they had this sort of experience um, being integrated. That was, that was really interesting because it was so organic. Like it wasn't like, these kids are white and these kids are black. It's like, here's, here's a bunch of kids to play with, you know? And at that time you didn't, I didn't really know or think much about it. So that was my initial dive into elementary school. 
that's super interesting. So how many of your, of this 30% that is doing this transition, were any of them really close friends with you or were you kind of not to be too dad joke slash punny, but were you fish out of watering it on your own? No, I mean, I was, my whole neighborhood went, it was, it was a neighborhood thing, but they weren't in my class. So I was kind of in this class with, you know, some of these rough, rough kids and, and just kind of had to learn how to, how to deal with those kind of kids. Cause I was very like sensitive and, and tender kid. I was not somebody who, who was gonna, um, stand up for themselves when I got there. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, after a while, I kind of learned that you kind of had to, and I'm not somebody who likes to fight and do all that, but you, you kind of have to make the bullies kind of have to make it cost them something. It's, it can't be free to bully you. Right. Once I kind of learned that lesson, fifth and sixth grade were awesome. I mean, I, I love that school. It was, it was great. And, uh, um, it was just that, that first year I got there, that was, that was pretty difficult. Um, so then, uh, after that, I went to junior high and back then in, in our school system, it was like seven, eight, nine was junior high. And, and your first year of high school was actually your last year of junior high. So it sort of counted. And then nine, 10, 11, or 10, 11, 12 was, was high school. And I was a, I was a big nerd. I was a Dungeons and Dragons guy. Um, I fell in with some guys that I still know today, um, Mm, of the five of us that were good friends all through high school, three of us, I saw those guys last week when I was home. So, but I was, I was very, um, I wasn't like the biggest nerd. Like you couldn't point at me and go, that guy's a nerd, but inside, oh yeah. And every, every weekend we would play Dungeons and Dragons or we'd play these games that, you know, back before they had computers, we were playing these sort of, you know, war simulation games that had a whole manual to go with them. And you'd have to read and use dice instead of like having a computer do it for you. Right. And like a squad leader and things like that. And so we, I, I grew up playing those games, and staying up all night with my friends and never dating anyone in high school, never going to the prom, <laughs> never doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but just being, you know, enmeshed, this, that was, that was something that really, that really spoke to me and has been sort of games and gaming has been a part of my life ever since. And now I'm actually, I think, I don't know about, I don't know if I wrote this in the email, but I'm a game designer. I design historical games for a company called historical board gaming in, in Tulsa. Oh, cool. So I'm bookmarking that so we can keep going down your timeline, okay. but I definitely want to hear more about that for sure. So that was, that was high school. I went to chapel high. I graduated um, without any major incidents. <laughs> and then <laughs> I went to college at Guilford, which was a little tiny Quaker college. I'm not a Quaker, mm. but it's a small Quaker college in, in Greensboro, which is about an hour away, which was just kind of far enough, you know, to get away from the hometown. And it was small enough that I could do a lot of things there. I got into, I kind of got into everything there. I kind of, I was on the radio. I had, I had a rap show. <laughs> I had, um, you I said had, rap, right? I had a rap show. I was a oh, rap awesome. DJ back then um, from 12 to 3 in, at night. In the, in the AM or the PM? <laughs> in the AM. Like, oh, man. 12 AM. No one else was listening. Um, yeah. And uh, I was in student uh, student legislature and things like that. And so it was a small school. It's like, like there was 1,500 kids there. So you could kind of get into everything. And then... 
you know, kind of coming off of that, I, uh, right after school, I, I got in a VW van, you know, the whole cliche. And I went to Alaska with my roommate and we got up there and I'm, it blew my mind. I totally fell in love with Alaska. And I was like, this is awesome. So I did that for like three months, came back and was just, I got to get back there. I worked for a while at a residential treatment facility for kids. Um, so I was a psych major. And worked at a while at a residential treatment facility for kids that were had disruptive behavior disorders, hmm. and and that was a, that was a whole other experience. And then coming out of that, like th- three years into that, I was like, I'm I'm moving to Alaska, and I moved up there for about uh, four years and just wanted to hunt, and fish, and run around. And wow! And you're how old at this point? I turned thirty when I was up there. Okay. I had a long childhood. <laughs> it took me a long time to settle down. I mean, I was like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go up there and go fishing and hunting and 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 hiking and backpacking and do all the stuff I love to do. And I kind of realized at the time, like, I'm really delaying. Like a lot of my friends got married out of college. Like they just mm-hmm. they just married their college girlfriend and bam, they were done. I got up there and and then finally, I didn't. I got to graduate school when I was 30, like two. I finally mm-hmm. went to grad school and then, you know, met my wife and uh, she came in a couple of years later and, and started to start to settle into, into life. And was this back in North Carolina again, no, or was that up in Alaska? So I went to California school of professional psychology oh, okay. and, and became a clinical psychologist, which is what I am today. And this, and you said California. Yeah, I was, I was, the school was in the Bay area. It was called California school of professional psychology. Oh, okay. So you, you guys met there in the Bay area. Yeah. So I was there like two years and then, and then my wife, Kate, who's also a clinical psychologist showed up a couple years later and then we started dating and mm-hmm. got married and moved to Oregon, which is where we have been ever since. Cool. And where is, are her roots from California or was she, does she have a totally crazy background like you as well um well crazy in a good way in a good way she does it in a good way um she's a portland girl her whole family is is in the area. Oh, okay so that wasn't sort of natural for us to come um back here i wanted to go to alaska and she was like uh you're gonna go to um to oregon but uh, i really came to live oregon it's really nice out here so and probably a little bit easier during certain times of the year summer's really nice um yeah like today it was crazy rain but you know, the mountains are an hour away. The beach is an hour away. It's good. So then we were, so then timeline wise, you know, we, uh, we were finishing up our, our doctorates and we had first kid in 06 and second kid in 09, Millie and Jane, two girls and been a dad now 12 years. That's great. And your parents, uh, now is your, is your mom still alive? Cause I know we've said definitely that your dad is. Yeah. They're both still alive. Okay. Yeah, it's 85. Mom's probably a couple of years younger. I'm not sure exactly. Um, That's okay. She won't hear this. <laughs> maybe she will. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're still, you know, they're still in Chapel Hill. They retired a while ago, but um, we just, we just were there this last week. And Oh, cool. Do you guys go out there a lot? Have they ever come out your way? They haven't for a while come out my way. We usually meet them in in maine over the summer for, for oh, okay so they the kids get to see them you know for for a period of time in the summer up in maine at the family place and then um and then at christmas i know for me 
grandparents are very special in a kind of different way. My my grandparents all I think were I think my my Grammy, which was my mom's mom, was the last one to go. And I think I was younger than 10 when she passed away and I I can't remember but so for me like I didn't get a lot of that good time with my grandparents and for my kids my my dad passed away a long time ago my mom is my mom just turned 87 and she's in a she's in an assisted living home now and so uh, the kids don't get to see her all that much and uh, my wife's mom lives literally two miles away so they see her all the time and my wife's dad used to live in bahrain and so they used to see him like once every few years but he recently moved back and hopefully is here to stay so at least they have the two of them and so for me like i really like pushing not saying hey you need to take care of our kids tonight but really trying to get as much time for them with their grandparents because of what i didn't get to spend with mine i think that that's a a very important relationship especially seeing even older kids than mine are so mine are 10 and 6 and even seeing old teenagers or people in their 20s who still have their grandparents it's like I can see how special that can be for so many of them. So uh, I think that's great that you guys are still able to have at least a yearly, if not more, time that you're spending with with your parents. Yeah, and Tim, you know, being a, a history guy, somebody who loves to to read and, and write about history in terms of just interest, but also in terms of the games that I work on, you know, the things that, like my mom's mom was born in 1901. Oh, wow. When I think about what she saw being born before there was electricity and cars and anything, you know, the changes she saw in life. It's amazing. And I I want my kids to have that sense of like, you know, your, your grandparents, like they lived through some times that would, the things they had to do would amaze you. Yeah. I, I know with my mom, I have to remind myself that because even though she's, alive now you know she was born basically right at the tail end of the depression so it's it's a solid reminder of how how much has happened even in the last 20 years you know it's ridiculous or 10 i was just we were just talking to our kids the other day or driving in the car and we had the navigation on and we started talking about like well what would you have done before you had an iphone and i i was telling my daughter about our book of maps, like both my wife and I had a book of maps yeah. in the Bay Area, you know, Thomas Guide. Yep, Thomas Guide. And you pulled over and you looked at the guide and you you figured it out on a piece of paper. And they were just like, what? <laughs> yeah. And you see people, I mean, you just don't see that anymore. People holding a actual like full fold out map and turning it around and trying to figure out where the heck they were supposed to turn or what turn they made and just flipping this humongous paper in their hand. And even, I mean, beyond that, like before we had true navigation systems, like even printing out um, map quest stuff and having three pages of turn left here, turn right there. (laughs) That was still like, 
still seems so antiquated and crazy compared to what we have now. And I was, I, you know, I say this every year, but I was talking about, about what Christmas has turned into. My kids have five Christmases, Tim. And, oh and, and it's not like, it's not like we do it. It's, they've got three sets of grandparents and Christmas morning. And we've got some family friends that really want to do Christmas with the girls. And there's three couples, three, three, four couples in that family. So it's like, it's like, uh, every year I feel like this grouchy old man is like back in my day, I'm going to go. Yeah. But by December yep. 14th, they'd had enough Christmas to sort of rival like what I would have had as a kid. And I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. You know, and it's, I think for you, like the obvious big thing that seems to create a solid balance. And this is me from the outside thinking this, but all of that time that you do spend with them outside and doing things with their hands and with nature and whatnot is a huge balance to all of what is the norm currently for kids their age. Yeah. You know, I had a professor in college at Guilford named Jerry Goddard. He actually recently passed away, but I took a class with him called relationships and he said something in there that I never forgot. He said, men bond by doing things with people. Like, mm-hmm. And I know it's a cliche. And in, in this day and age, you know, you can't just bank on difference between the sexes. But, you know, it's, I think for me as a man, it's really true. It's like, I'll go off with my guy friends and we won't talk about anything. We'll mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. things together. Um, you know, I went canoeing with my friend one time for three days. We're up in Alaska on this river. And I got back and my wife said, what did, what did you and Wayne talk about? I'm like, nothing. He's like, you didn't talk to Wayne. I'm like, no, we talked. We just didn't really talk about anything. We just talked, we, you know, just paddled the canoe. Like, that's what you do. And I think for me, you know, I do, I do talk to my daughters, but I also want to do stuff with them because I, because I do connect with people, you know, by doing stuff together. And, you know, my, my kid, my kid's backpacking, my oldest daughter's starting to want to do sections of the Pacific Crest Trail. Oh, wow. And so I'm totally on that. And, you know, yeah, just like, I really feel like, like that's, that's a deep, it's a deep connection when you're actually doing something rather than just sitting talking. Um, Mm -hmm. Although I'm, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I talk to people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is said by. Yeah. So I can, I can play both, (laughs) both roles. I can talk about stuff and feelings. Um, But, you know, I think there's more to it than talking. Yeah. No, I, and I don't do a lot of that stuff with my kids on a very regular basis, unfortunately, but like I was telling my wife on, on new year's day, it was just crazy windy. And we said, why don't we get some kites myself and my friend, Josh, we went and drove around to like five different stores to finally find some kites and came back and we went to a park and um, I think we each bought three kites and like two of them actually were worked really well. And I told my wife that was probably my favorite day and maybe the last two years, oh, cool. like just going out there and flying kites. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just that really simple, you know, moments where you're just hanging out mm-hmm. and doing something and doesn't always even matter what it is. And And I will say I planted a little seed with my daughter because I was telling her, as she, because she kept wanting to do 
a lot more than she needed to with the kite. And I kept telling her like, you have to, you have to let the wind do the work and you got to calm down because every time you, the more you move, the more it makes the kite kind of dive and whatever. And I said, this is kind of like fishing. Like you got to just kind of hang out and talk and keep an eye on your line and move it every once in a while to make something happen. But we're just kind of being patient and hanging out and talking. And she was like, okay. And I think a few minutes later she was like, all right, I'm over this. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I inadvertently tried to sow a little um, fishing seed in there. We'll see. Cool. Yeah. Well, Hey, you know, like I said, it's, it, I started off with the milkshakes and the hamburgers and making it fun. Cause I saw the dads like up in, up in Alaska sometimes who would make their kids sit there for 40 hours and miserable and wet and wanted to go home and they were never going to go fishing again. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, you just tortured them, just tortured them. So we had the brainwashing program and it worked very well. Yeah. That's brilliant. So speaking of brainwashing, um, let's get into some of your other stuff that you do. I know you you mentioned threat assessment. I don't know how deep that goes. Like, are you on the blacklist and you can't talk about it? Or I'm not on the blacklist. <laughs> I so uh, as a clinical psychologist, I'll just sort of talk about what I do in my activities because that's that's one of the things that I do. Well, I'm a consultant for school districts. That's the that's my first and foremost job. I consult to to one large district in the in the Portland suburbs. Um, it's about twenty two thousand kids. But then on top of that, I sort of consult statewide on a lot about kids with challenging behavior because that's sort of my background. I mentioned that I started in residential treatment, so I'm helping my client districts implement best practices, consulting with teachers on cases sometimes consulting on like really intense, you know, behavior cases, um, sometimes with legal, legal action that's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm kind of doing my work in scale. Like I don't sit down with a kid and ask them, you know, how are you doing today? Very often. Right. Sometimes, sometimes I'm just, I do cause I'm there, but sometimes I'll do assessment. I have two interns that, that come to me every year and, and, and people that train with me that are doing that. So I'm kind of supervising my own little mini clinic. But then part of that, as I, as I think I mentioned to you in the email is threat assessment. So, you know, with all the school shooter stuff and school threatening stuff that's going on today, I'm in, involved in helping the district assess and manage threats. So we have sort of a best practice threat assessment team where we're looking at threats of targeted violence. Um, and I do, so I do that in the school and then, I also um, do it with the Hillsborough City and Hillsborough Police on their citywide team. Mm. So I see, you know, I see the sort of dark side sometimes of things, um, mm-hmm. and and also get to get to do some fun things with kids as as well, and, and, and teachers and help help them. And then on top of that, you know, the other thing I do is psychologists. I have a, a startup company called Three Two One Insight, and kind of the way that came around was another psychologist and I we we needed to train people on these a lot of these best practices in, in special education, behavior management, but we didn't have the time. That, um, we had the time. They didn't have the time. So we really wanted to create a tool that districts could use to make people more effective now rather than look at credit hours and stuff like that. Like, how can we take somebody? And we started with paraeducators because they're these sort of unlicensed um, teaching assistants that are in the schools. I don't know if you know exactly what I'm talking about, but they're doing a lot of work in special education, a lot of work with vulnerable kids. And so we wanted a way for districts to train those folks. And 
So we we launched three to one insight as this platform for districts to do like really brief effectiveness training. And so that's that's another piece of my work as a psychologist is working with that company. So locally here in Southern California, it seems in in our district alone, like, gosh, maybe once every two months, fairly local to uh, where my kids go to school and, and every once in a while it happens to be their school that there is a lockdown because of some threat that's been either called in or I don't know how, however they're finding it. Is that happening in your area as well? Frequently, commonly, whatever adverb you want to attach to that? Yeah, sort of in, in, in the region, you know, around the Portland Metro there's a lot of things like if there's um, police action, something concerning, you know, in a house within a certain distance of the school, they'll lock the school down. Um, okay. So it's not always something going in in the school. Mm-hmm. We, we staff a lot of a lot of threats that are not, you know, as this stuff gets media attention, kids say stuff. And really, threat assessment isn't about whether someone said something or not. It's about looking at risk factors. And so I, I look at it a lot like, you know, so you go to your doctor and you say, are you going to get cancer? Well, your doctor doesn't know. And they're not even going to say, well, you've got a 20% or a 30% chance. They're going to say, here are all your risk factors. You've got a family history. You smoke. You work in an asbestos factory. So they're going to talk about what your current risk factors are and how to reduce those. So the whole idea about threat assessment is mitigation. And so typically I see... What's happening in, you know, when a school's locked down is, is never really proportional to the threat that we're having. It usually, mm-hmm. It's usually people, you know, the community gets spun up really fast because the minute there's a threat, people start throwing up the school and wanting to pull their kids out. And, right. You know, the, the people who are really concerning are not the ones making threats. Now, that's not to say that. You have to not take that seriously. But if you look at profiles of shooters or, or shooting events, that those aren't always the things that are the most concerning is, is what, mm-hmm. what the person said or said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And so are you battling any of or does any of your involvement with this touch on, and I don't know Oregon compared to California, but touch on any of the conversations regarding arming school attendance and teachers and all that kind of stuff um that 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 has never come up in our in our district um, okay and the way i look at it is you know the question with threat assessment is always what makes us safer and let's say you take you know all of oregon schools and you put 1500 guns in there are you safer because now you've got 1500 mm. guns that can be stolen or misused or miss you know you've got 1500 accidents um yeah are you are you going to come out ahead in that equation yeah um if you can even reduce it to an equation and i don't know the answer i mean i've seen districts that are 45 minutes from law enforcement response you know actually do it but you know in portland we're three and five minute law enforcement response you know so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Um, that's not something that I think will ever happen in our in our region. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat or anything. Oh, I have no. lots of opinions about it. 
Um, I mean, you can get on that seat if you want, but um, I'm not trying to not trying to push you into anything. Now, yeah, yeah. So now that you are older and parenting and all of that, do you see similarities between your being your father's child to how you parent your girls at all? Or do you think that that it's kind of a little bit different just because of generations and because they're girls and you were a boy, you are a boy still. Sorry. I am. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, gosh, that's a hard question. You know, I, I wondered for a long time why I was the way I was. And the funny thing is like when my first daughter was born, um, Millie, uh, has a lot of similarities to me. I, she had, she'd not been more than a year old. And I, I, I just said to myself, Oh, she came out of the box that way. Like she's had none of the experiences that I've had. And she's already has all of these, you know, very similar personality trait mm-hmm. to me. And I was just like, you know, th- that's your first kid. And you're like, Oh, she just came out of the box that way. Like, I don't yeah. need to sit and wonder what formative experiences I had. Cause I probably came out of the box that way. Yeah. You know, I, I think in terms of if you compared my parenting and, and you know, my, my wife's parenting to, to, to my parents, like we would look like helicopter parents mm-hmm. and, and we're not, but I had a lot of latitude as a kid, like pretty much whatever I wanted to do, wherever I wanted to, I mean, I would be out by myself at a young age running around without a whole lot of supervision. I had to be home at a certain time, you know, there were no mm-hmm. rules and regulations, but I was, I was gone. I was out. I remember one time being at the park down by my house and there was a trail that sort of led like a, a sewer trail that led all the way back into the woods and seeing this pack of like wild dogs run across the sewer line, like further down from me and just thinking I could get eaten out here. <laughs> like I never thought about that, but I could get eaten out here. I never, yeah. I never told my parents that. I was like, yeah, they didn't know that, you know. But like you know, our girls like you know, we're 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 like, should we let them walk around the block? Should we let them? Right, you know, totally. I mean, yeah. Part part of it's maybe what the work we do. Maybe part of it's just the times when you hear about every horrible thing that happens within the you know the entire country every day. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we're a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot of similarities too. You know, I think as as psychologists, you know, you'd think our kids would be completely screwed up because they're being parented mm-hmm. to psychologists. But I, you know, I don't really feel like, you know, we're, Kate and I care about the big things and the important things. And we're not so interested in the little things like in our house, you can have a piece of candy. Like there's no candy's yeah. there. Like you can, you can reach over and, and eat a piece of candy. You can do that in a breakfast time if you want it. <laughs> Um, and I see the kids that come to our house that whose parents are like, you can have five pieces of your Halloween candy and you can tell that they're really upset about it anyway. And mm-hmm. away. that's when those kids come to our house, Tim, they want to eat the gingerbread house. The gingerbread house is nasty. <laughs> Not only is it like, you know, hard and, and too hard to eat and, and, and like weeks old, but we hot glue them that thing together. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's candy. Not edible glue. It's available. Like it's out. Like, like, can we have it? Can we eat it? And I'm like, Mm-hmm. Well, like you can just have a regular piece of candy man <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to eat that you don't yeah have to eat it you know, it's just, you know so do you guys th- that's a interesting point 
well, is Kate in child psychology as well or a different she was. section? She, oh, okay. she did kind of what I did for a while and now she's in reproductive medicine. So she evaluates egg donors, gestational carriers and things like that. Oh, wow. Um, health psychology uh, emphasis. You guys are just a, a pack of very intelligent people. Uh, I don't know about that. We sound, we can sound intelligent when we want to. Well, I mean, you know, I think I'm done with this child psychology thing. Yeah. What do you think you're going to do? I think I'll go into uh, gestational <laughs> recreation just for fun. Yeah. It, she did. Like, she was just like, I'm going to go learn this. And, and, you know, she was a neuropsych to start with and she's really smart. Uh huh. So, uh, you know, she's just flipped into that and was like, okay, I can do this too. And, you know, she'll say, oh, I'm not really smart, but I listened to her talk on the phone to um, mm-hmm. about to like about a about a case, and I'm like, wow. And she's also done some legal some legal work recently too, and for expert witness stuff. That's awesome. And so, yeah. So, what I was going to ask was, do you guys have to make a conscious effort at all to kind of not over and I mean. Uh, this is a very ignorant outsider question, but it, is it that thought that we all have that you guys are having to work harder to shut off the way you are thinking work-wise when you're at home, or is that? I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, I think like the old psychologists, you know, it, it, when we were kids and in the old days, they were they were trained as analysts. They were trained as psychoanalysts, and they analyzed the you know what out of everything. And that's not the way Kate and I were trained to look at. I think if anything, it sort of increases the range of normal. You're like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're still in the normal tolerable range. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you if we didn't have the experiences we have at work, we might not, you know, we might go, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's right. normal. Is that normal? Is everything okay? And we're kind of like, yeah. We are definitely doing fine. We're, we're doing yeah. okay. The more extreme that you're saying. We're doing okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not, we're not perfect as parents, you know, we make mistakes. Um, we get frustrated. It's, you know, we're just like anybody else. I I think sometimes we have different words for it because we're psychologists. Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, we can see, we can see the big things through the small things. You know, it's more important that you get positive messages from your parents and you feel like parents are in your court than, then, then we shame the heck out of you for getting a bad grade or, or we get on you for doing, you know, whatever. We try to end every day. We try to start every day happy and end every day happy. We try not to let anything carry over from the day before and mm-hmm. try and fix problems when they come up and, and you know, keep keep the tone in the house to to be a pleasant, happy place. Yeah, that's good. That's a, that's a lot of what we are kind of learning now as managers in our animal hospital and i think a lot of people are starting to kind of move into this path that i've been managing way way too long like i shouldn't have been managing as early as i was because i was managing at tower records when i was younger than 20 and i've done it in multiple fields in multiple countries and right now i think is is one of those groups that is more interesting because it is kind of a we have like a very family feel at our hospital because some people have been working there a long time together and 
one of the things that I think was a management tool for a very long time was the basically the shit sandwich <laughs> that you you yeah. know you led with you led with something positive right. and then you got to the meat of the of why you were talking to this person which was the negative and then you ended it with something positive and so that was something that was supposed to be good and it's hilarious now that for so long that was something that people thought was a good method like people walked out thinking Hey, they said my hair looked great. I don't even remember the fact that they said I'm the worst employee here for the last two decades. <laughs> so, yeah, like a lot of that stuff, learning how much, how important all of that positive feedback and uh, giving somebody the high fives constantly when they're doing the good things and doing things right goes a long way with being able to have that ability to give them the little tweaks when something is not going right. Exactly. And I think as, as a parent and as, as, as somebody who manages staff, like with my, my interns or with, you know, the staff I consult to, I'm pretty direct. Like I'll tell you if some, if you're not doing something right mm -hmm. and, and I, our kids kind of know, like we'll give you feedback. You'll definitely yeah. get it. But it's all well-meaning and it's all to make you better and to help you out. Right. And so yeah. you kind of have to develop that rapport and that relationship first. And then, you know, I, and when I consult, I always ask people, especially if I'm brand new to them, I'll say, you know, I'm going to be here. I'm going to observe. And, and afterwards, you know, can I give you some feedback? Is that going to be all right? And people will always give mm -hmm. you permission. They'll always say, oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Totally. And when yeah. you, you come in and just start giving, criticizing, they're going to be like, hey, dude get out of here you know <laughs> yeah so it's it's a scale you know and and i think yeah and, and we're definitely not people who hold back like you know with our kids like we'll tell you like if you're doing that like that's that's not going to work very well for you mm -hmm. people are not going to appreciate that mm -hmm. and our kids have kind of learned like oh, okay you know to, to accept it and to take it from us um yeah but i do feel like i do feel like you could be direct if you have good intentions Oh, totally. I have these two words written on this little whiteboard that is in our office and I have it circled really big and it's extreme clarity. And I point that out to people all the time and I tell them, I'm going to try to do this with you, but you need to do it with others here at work as well. And people, you know, I, a lot of times I'm telling people these lessons, a lot of these things that we're dealing with, with you are not just here for the workplace. This is stuff that you should be doing in your relationships with loved ones and your friends and whatever as well. And yeah, that being able to still be very clear. And I think that's a very big thing that some people miss out on in our quest for, I think we've gone from the shit sandwich to the, I don't know, the, dance of words kind of and trying to really like i'm gonna make this a five minute conversation even though it could be a one minute conversation mm -hmm. and being able to have that clarity because then people are just walking away from your conversation saying i'm not really sure what you just told me so uh yeah we it's 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 all a balance will absolutely yeah so I think we've kind of run through all of your 
non-frantic plates that you are spinning. Yes, I think so. I think I think we got them. All. Yeah, yeah. So I will say it's been fantastic hearing all these stories, and I, I'm sure that there could be many more. And you have been all over the country and all over more than just that but these places that you have gone on your own like going to alaska on your own and going to the bay area and all of this stuff is so cool and a and a solid reminder i think to people who kind of get settled and get stuck a little bit in life and all of these things that you can do and you were doing these things into your 30s and still like are having an adventure of a life with your wife and your two girls I think is is really cool and a good example to others to still get out there and live life and do things with others and with your children and I am definitely taking some inspiration from this to do more outside stuff and get my kids. You don't all have to take your kids fishing, but I'm definitely going to get my kids fishing this year. Get get them out there. I mean, as a, as a dad, you know, I, I played for a long time before I settled down, but you know, a a lot of some of the other younger dads, I know like when they're, when they're my age, their kids are going to be gone. Like, what are you going to do? You know? So I, I think, you know, it's been, I, I'm glad for me that I waited till I was older and, and now I get to do some adventures with my kids, which is, it's, they're starting to get to the age where we can really go do some things. And I'm really excited to show them that, that side of things. Yeah. And it, even though they will be your age or younger when it is really, really hitting them. And I think that's kind of the cool thing of that cycle of life. I don't want to get sued by the lion king so i won't say circle um but that thing where we are having these epiphanies as adults of oh that's so cool that my parents did that for me or with me or that they took me to experience this and i i did not realize the vastness of it at that time and it was just cool or fun to me but now i'm seeing like what a big deal and how much i took away from that and how that continues to go down the line you know your parents did those things with you and now you're doing them with your kids or you did them on your own and so i think that that continues this thing that continues to keep the world moving and keep people moving in positive ways i guess so yeah and and thank you tim for like this podcast has been really fun to listen to as i got to hear about it and just to hear what other dads are doing and legitimizing the role of dads and it's been great to it's it's made me reflect on all those things that my parents did that that i'm grateful for and that i didn't think about until i really started to to examine them yeah thank you that's awesome so again thanks so much for spending time late into the night on a weeknight like this with me will i really appreciate it i'm glad that it came together pretty quickly and i know people will really love hearing these really cool stories from your life so thank you thank you tim for having me on it was a it was a pleasure
All right. And that was my conversation with Will Henson. Again, I will have this information in the show notes, but you who are educators, you should check out 321insight.com or some of those tools and ways to help educators with some training. Also in the show notes, ways for you to find Daddy Unscripted. It's simply Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. I would really like, I say this every time, and maybe I don't every time, but leave a review, leave a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It really does help more people find the podcast when you do that. So not only is it a great, really nice thing for you to do, but it's also a good thing to keep the podcast growing and that really does help by my having a larger audience. So keep telling friends, let me know if you need me to help out in any way or have a guest on that might be very helpful in bringing more people to the podcast. If you have a good friend that should be on the podcast or that you are maybe that person that should be on here to tell some stories and is a dad, send me a line, daddyunscripted at gmail.com. Very quickly, I know you're about to maybe move on to your next podcast episode, maybe another Daddy Unscripted episode. But before you do that, consider checking out another one of the Osiris podcasts, which is called Which is Better? It has three hosts, Brad, Sean, and Gary, and it's a very funny podcast where there are two topics that they discuss, and they try to argue which one is better. They have a really cool presence online as well, so you should make sure to check out which is better, listen to their podcast, and check them out on Twitter and anywhere else that you can find them being Facebook or Instagram. As always, I will thank... Umphreys McGee for their involvement with the podcast, letting me have their music be a part of it. They are probably on the road right now at around the time this episode is coming out. If they are not, they are coming soon to an area near you, and there is still time to check these guys out. They are amazing musicians, and I'm just going to warn you, they, they melt faces, they rage. If you love going to see live music, then you should definitely check them out when they are near you. I guarantee you will have a face-melting time. Thanks again for listening, you guys. I will now say goodbye to you in Bulgarian, which was what I welcomed you by saying, Dovizdene! Thank you very much for listening. See you guys all with the next episode soon. Music